Habakkuk. And as we end, uh, as we come to the close to the end of our series, we're not quite there yet. Next week will be the end of our series. But as we come close, we find ourselves this morning coming out of God's plan of justice in chapter two, if you remember, to Habakkuk's final response in chapter three to God in light of the vision that he had received. And as we said last week, Habakkuk had begun his dialogue in an effort so the most to powerful characters, the mysterious ways of a holy God with sinful people. But now he finds himself standing in the presence of the Lord's holy temple, hushed in reverent awe. And after he sees God's faithfulness expressed in this vision, he finally breaks his silence with the prayer that we find here in chapter 3. And as we look at the first 15 verses of his prayer in chapter 3 this morning, I want to walk through three shifts in this passage that you'll see on your outline if you have that in front of you. But I've called them the prayer, the plan, and the purpose. And my hope is that as we as we go through those shifts this morning, we will come to a better understanding as we just saw in 1 Samuel 7, that those who live by faith will trust the Lord to fight their battles. Those who live by faith will trust the Lord to fight their battles. So let's read together out of Habakkuk 3, verses 1 through 15, as we seek to better understand what it looks like to trust God to fight for us. So Habakkuk 3. Verse 1 starts like this. O Lord, oh, sorry, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. I almost missed the introduction. That's the most important part. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His ways were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, and you split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed, the raging waters swept on, the deep gave forth its voice, it lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place, and the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of the glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury, you threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. 
and you trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word this morning. And again, although poetic, although filled with symbolism, Lord, there is a good word for us to understand this morning. May your spirit open our hearts, our minds to this word so that we may learn what you would teach us. And may we be transformed after hearing what you have here in Habakkuk 3. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as Habakkuk responds to God's promise of justice, he shifts here from divine interference and interrogations to certainties and affirmations of God's power. His dialogue with God is now over. He now will lead the people into the acceptance of the just and merciful orderings to which the Lord has revealed to him. The first thing we see here is the outline of his prayer, specifically in verses 1 and 2. He begins in verse 1 with the introduction of prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. And as we said in the first week of the series, the book of Habakkuk was used for liturgical worship in some way, which is most clearly seen here in chapter 3. Although we don't know what a Shigianoth is, we do understand that Habakkuk's response to God's plan for Judah and Babylon is a hymn. And not just a hymn, a victory song describing the appearance of the divine warrior who is coming to fight on their behalf. Again, as the spokesperson for God's people, Habakkuk offers this hymn of praise to be used as worship for God's people. He then begins this prayer in verse 2 in an almost outline form of what we will see in the rest of the chapter. He says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So he says three things. He says, revive the work of faithfulness that you've always done. Make it known again. And in that work, remember mercy. Now we can sum those things up in two themes that we will see in this chapter. First is a prayer of accomplishment of the work that the Lord has described in chapters 1 and 2. This is what we're going to see today in verses 3 through 15. And the second theme is a reminder and a call to take comfort in God's mercy in the midst of judgment. That we will see next week in verses 16 through 19. But before he digs into this prayer, he begins by showing us that after waiting for God's plan, right? At the beginning of chapter 2, he stands on the watchtower. He waits for God's response to his prayer and for God's plan to be unfolded. He now has heard it, and he sits with that vision in fear. I mean, can you blame him? The dreaded and barbarous Babylonians were coming to implement judgment on God's people on his behalf and then would be swept up in this judgment as well. This would evoke fear in, in many of us. But this reverent fear shows the true faith of the prophet here. He knows that these things will come to pass because it is God who has spoken them. And more than that, he knows that he will have to live by faith as the world seems to be out of control around him. 
So he says to God, in the midst of the years, or in other words, the time in between the two judgments described, revive your work and make it known. The NIV, it actually says, repeat them in our day. So what Habakkuk is saying is that he knows that this is not the first time that God has brought forth justice and judgment on his people and the nations. And he asks that the Lord will do that good work again in their day, remembering mercy and wrath as he is sustained by faith during this trial. The reality of God's coming in the past and future provides the basis for faith that assures life as he prays and waits on the Lord. And with this prayer outlined, he dives into the first part of it here in verses 3 through 15. This section itself can be broken down into two parts, which I have called the plan in verses 3 through 7 and the purpose in verses 8 through 15. Let's first look at verses 3 through 7 and see the plan. Again, knowing that the Lord has done this for his people before, Habakkuk confidently praises God for the fact that he will come again in power to right the wrongs of this world. In this section, Habakkuk uses images from God's faithfulness to his people in the past to give them hope for his continued faithfulness in the future. Matthew Henry helpfully says here, it has been the usual practice of God's people when they have been in distress and ready to fall into despair to help themselves by recollecting their experiences and reviving them, considering the days of old and pleading with God in prayer. And it's still a good practice for us to meditate on the acts of God in the past, pray in our present circumstances, live in faithfulness to the Lord, and rejoice in his future deliverance. This is what Habakkuk does here. He uses figures from God's past intervention for Israel's deliverance in Egypt and in the conquest of Canaan to give them a picture of the future redemption that they could anticipate. He begins in verse 3 by saying, God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. Mount Paran in Deuteronomy 33.3 and Taman in Judges 5 were two places that were, that were acting as God's theater, displaying his glory as it went forth and God's great power as he led his people from the wilderness to Edom into the promised land. Habakkuk's point is just like he had done in the wilderness and as they came into the promised land, God would come in his glory to lead his people in the deliverance that they needed. But this time when the Holy One comes for deliverance, it would not just be for his people alone, but it would be for everyone as his glory would cover the heavens and fill the whole earth with praise. So Habakkuk's hope begins and hinges on the fact that the Lord will come again in power and glory to personally eradicate sin from the ends of the earth. The image that we see here then is of God walking among the earth to bring about justice in the removal 
of sin and evil from the world. And he continues this thought by saying, His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hands, and there he veiled his power. God in his glory would flood the darkness of this world with his light. And in power and personal activity coming forth from his hand, this glory would flash as he lights up the darkness, unveiling his power and exposing the false kingdoms and idols of this world for what they really are. But although he goes forth in glory and power, verse 5 says, before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. Part of God's holiness and his glory, as we saw last week, is his justice and his goodness in not letting sin go unpunished. So Habakkuk, in, in recollecting the judgment on the Israelites in the wilderness when they disobeyed the Mosaic Covenant, shows us that included in God's goodness and sovereignty is his enacting judgment on those who remain in their sin. And as God marches through the earth to defeat sin, we continue to read in verse 6 that he stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. The eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. We see here just as he did at creation and just as he did for God's people in measuring the promised land for them, the Lord shows that the whole earth is under his control and his care. And what's the response of creation and the nations when they see the Lord coming in justice? They are shaken, scattered, they're sunk low as they recognize the power and the majesty of the ruler of the universe who has come. The world is stunned at his arrival. But this shouldn't be surprising for us to hear today. I mean, think about it. Our world lives as if there is no God. They live as if they need, they, they need not listen or take note of this God. So, of course, when he finally comes again in glory and in power, they would respond in utter shock and awe of the God that they never thought existed standing before them. He continues his thought in verse 7, I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction, the curtains of the land in Midian did tremble. Habakkuk here realizes that as he watched the Lord enact judgment on the nations that are living in sinful rebellion to God, he too, as being the spokesperson for God's rebellious people, would be swept up in this impending judgment to come. I mean, what an image. We're only halfway through in this image is spectacular. It, it, it excites our imagination. It leaves us awestruck at the fact that the Lord will come in power and in glory to one day fully eradicate the sin of this world. I mean, we just heard it in our call to worship. We just sang it in that last song about God being the king of glory, right? He is the king of glory. And just as he did countless times for his people in the past, he will do it again in fullness when Christ returns to redeem this broken world. God's plan, as Habakkuk outlines here, was to come and bring judgment and enact justice on this earth for the comfort of his people living in faith 
and to the shock and awe of those who never thought he existed in the first place. We already are seeing here so clearly that those who live by faith will trust the Lord to fight their battles. And it's at this point that Habakkuk turns from a description of God's great coming and power to an explanation of the reason for his coming. This comes primarily as he now turns to address the Lord directly in verse 8. We've seen the prayer outlined. We've heard the plan explained. The third thing we see in this passage is the purpose. Habakkuk responds to God's coming in power by saying, Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode out on your horses on your chariot of salvation? Again, he's alluding to the countless times the Lord provided deliverance for his people by use of the water. And Habakkuk is asking here, did you part the Red Sea? Did you part the Jordan River? Did you use the Kishon River because you were mad at them? And of course, the answer is no. As the ruler of creation, he uses his creation in those instances for the sake of the redemption of God's people. He continues this thought in verses 9 and 10. You stripped the sheaf from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted up its hands on high. Again, as he comes in judgment against the sin of this world and for the deliverance of his people, he does so as the divine warrior who has pulled out his arrows. But his arrows, we see, are creation itself. His weapons are the primeval elements of creation. Rather than creation being the object of his wrath, it is instead the instrument of his deliverance. And when creation sees him coming like this, just as we saw in verse 6, it responds in great fear and anticipation of what this divine warrior can do. Verse 11 even says that the sun and moon stand still as they watch the Lord enact deliverance for his people. Again, this is an allusion to the account in Joshua 10 when the sun stood still for God to defeat the Amorites on behalf of his people. Again, the, the, the image is clear. Just as God had done before, God will do again for his people. And as creation stands and watches, Habakkuk says in verse 12 that God marched through the earth in fury, threshing the nations in anger. Again, he's showing us that God's anger was not irrational against his own creation, but instead was a response to the wickedness of the nations. The imagery here is of the divine king who's sitting on his throne, who's looking out at his kingdom and seeing it in utter rebellion against him, decides not out of human emotional anger, but out of holy justice to come down from his throne to deliver those who are yet faithful to him by overthrowing those who have staged coups and uprising against him. He comes in such power that even creation itself can hardly bear his presence, trembling under the weight of his footsteps. 
And as we get to verse 13, we finally see the purpose for all of this. It says, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. Right? Just like he did in the Exodus. Just like he did in the conquest of the promised land. And just as he has done time and time again, the Lord is coming in power and glory to rid the world of evil for the deliverance and the salvation of his people. This isn't a vindictive God who is mad that people didn't listen to him. This isn't a a God like the Greek gods who's standing there waiting to smite people when they do the wrong thing. This is a God of love who's, who's sitting on his throne seeing that the good creation that he made for his people to thrive in has been stripped away and destroyed by those who think they can do better. And as such, he comes off his throne himself to rescue them from the brokenness of this world. This is why, like we read in chapter 2, that verse 4, the theme of all of Habakkuk, that we are called to live by faith. For he has not forgotten us, nor has he turned a blind eye to the sin and brokenness of this world. He is coming again in glory and power for the salvation of his people and the salvation of his anointed. He concludes this section then with the irony that he will use their own weapons against them as he again comes in power as the divine warrior to fight on behalf of his people. We do not have to fear the strength and seeming power of those who stand against God, for we can rest assured in that the fact that their strength displays only the capacity for them to destroy themselves. The strength and power of the world is an illusion. It will end up being the very thing that results in their demise. So the purpose of God's plan of justice and judgment here is for the salvation and deliverance of his people. The prophet here has depicted God, the Savior, coming in all his glory. Thus, the faith that we saw in chapter 2 must look to the glorious appearance of the great God, who is also our Savior. Again, in laying out his prayer, God's plan and God's purpose, Habakkuk ultimately shows us here that those who live by faith will trust the Lord to fight their battles. I I think that it is difficult for us today to read passages like this that describe God as a divine warrior and to find them to be comforting for us. We often like to think of God as, you know, as our good father, who's just waiting to meet our every need when we come to him. But we're not used to thinking about God as the coming warrior who will destroy evil, who will put an end to the injustices of this world. And the reality of the brokenness of this world is far too much for any one of us to handle on our own. If we don't look to God as the divine warrior who will come and fight for us to fully defeat 
and eradicate brokenness from this world, we will find that the brokenness of this world is too much for us to handle. Our hope needs to be in the reality that this is who God is and that he has promised to do this on our behalf. Sure, it helps when we tackle issues together, but time and time again, we will see that although we may take care of the exterior issues of sin at times, it is God alone who we need to trust to eradicate all the underlying issues of this world. And let's be fair, that's the good news of the gospel, that God, realizing that we could not win the war on sin and evil ourselves, but often found ourselves defecting to the enemy's side, came through Christ in power and in glory to defeat it. In Christ, he dealt sin and evil its death blow. Ironically, through dying on the cross and rising from the grave, right? Just like we saw in verse 14, the weapons of the enemy are used against them as not even death can stop God from defeating the brokenness of this world. And now we live in the midst of the years, just like Habakkuk and the people here, as we wait for Christ to return in the fullness of his power and glory in the imagery that we see here in Habakkuk. As such, we are exactly like the people that Habakkuk stands as spokesperson for and are exactly those who will need to live by faith as we participate in God's plan of redemption being brought about. Just like God's people here who could look at God's faithfulness in the past as the confidence of the hope that they now have in his faithfulness to come, we too primarily look to Christ and the cross as the surety of God's deliverance from the brokenness of this world. I want to close with one final quote, this one from C.S. Lewis. In his not-so-well-known book, The World's Last Night and Other Essays, he says this. He says, The second coming of Christ is the medicine our condition especially needs. The second coming of Christ is the medicine our condition especially needs. So is that, is that true for you? Are you looking to Christ's return with expectancy and with hope as your only, the only thing that you know can fix the issues of this world? Or do we spend more time trying to solve all the world's problems by ourselves, finding ourselves frustrated and overwhelmed by the sinfulness and the evil that we see around us? There is plenty for us to do to build the kingdom of God right now, but we need to understand, as we have seen in this passage in Habakkuk this morning, that those who live by faith will ultimately trust the Lord to fight their battles for them. May we long as God's people for the medicine that we so desperately need as we trust in our good God to once again be our Savior when he comes in power, when he comes in glory to fully eradicate sin from this world. Let's pray.
Lord, we just thank you for this text. We thank you, Lord, that although it may be hard for us to hear that our true hope is in the fact that you will come in power and glory and fully remove evil from this world. We thank you that we have a part to play in this even now as we seek to fight injustice, as we seek to fight the broken systems of this world, Lord. We do so through your power and through the indwelling spirit that has given us this ability. But Lord, may we never fool ourselves into thinking that we are the ones who will win the war, that you are relying fully on us because the opposite is true. You are our divine king, our divine warrior, who we trust to fight our battles. So as we sit here this morning with so many prayer requests and burdens on our hearts, we admit, Lord, that we need to trust more in you to provide what we need. Thank you that you are faithful to do this, that you have done it in the past. You will do it now and you will do it again in the future. Help us to trust you and to trust that more and more each day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.